So, a lot has happened since I posted my video on the Doctrine of the Trinity last week. So let's go ahead and talk about some of the responses and what it means for the channel and what we're going to cover in this video. Let's go ahead and get started. So hello again and welcome back to Grace Nerd. My name is Eric. If you're new to the channel and you like Christian theology, commentary on culture from a Christian worldview, and conversation about the Christian life, then make sure that you go ahead and leave a like if you enjoyed the video, and go ahead and subscribe if you like content like this. If you're listening through audio, then make sure that you go ahead and subscribe through whatever podcast platform you discovered the podcast on. So if you remember from last week, we ended up covering some basic arguments for each element of the doctrine of the Trinity. And throughout the course of that video, I ended up outlining some different errors and heresies that cropped up throughout church history that strayed away from the foundational aspects of the Trinity. What was interesting about this is that throughout the course of this past week, since I posted the video, I've received objections from pretty much every one of the categories that I mentioned. I've received comments from people who belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons. I've received comments from what appeared to be Jehovah's Witnesses. I've received a comment or two from a oneness person, also known as a modalist or a Sibelian. And it was certainly interesting interacting with all of these people. So if any of you who disagree with me have returned, well, welcome back to the channel. I appreciate your comments and your interaction. But something that you should probably know is the more that you comment, the more that you engage, the more that YouTube's algorithm is going to promote the video. As a result of the massive number of comments I received, last week's video has turned out to be probably the second most viewed video on the entire channel so far, and it's landed me probably uh, at least a dozen more subscribers. So if you're one of those new subscribers, thanks for subscribing and thanks for joining me again. Something interesting that has revealed itself about this whole process is that with a small channel like this, when you post something that provokes a lot of debate, you're probably going to provoke comments from people who disagree. And so you'll notice that pretty much 95% of the comment section on last week's video was, you might say, negative, or at least from people who responded in the negative in the debate. Whereas the like section was much more positive. As of the recording of this video, the video has about 18 likes and a couple dislikes, so it's majority positive when it comes to the like dislike ratio. I guess that's basically because people who stopped by and enjoyed the content and basically agreed with it didn't have much to add. But obviously when you feel provoked by certain content, you feel compelled to comment. And so basically you see that reflected in the likes, dislikes versus the comments. But again, engagement is engagement and it has added to the growth of the channel. So even though you may not like my content, those of you who have been commenting, you have helped me out quite a bit. So I appreciate it. So there's a few things I want to do in this video. One of the interesting things about last week's video is that one of the topics that I spent the least amount of time emphasizing was arguments for the personhood of the Holy Spirit. That's not to say my arguments were weak, but I definitely spent the least amount of time on it. However, in spite of this, people targeted this part of the video the least. The main focus of people's objections was the deity of Christ, for sure. So basically what I'm going to do in this video is talk about at least one more passage on the doctrine of the personhood of the Holy Spirit, and then I'm going to jump into some more of the substantive objections on the deity of Christ. And basically, this is giving me the opportunity to continue on in the PowerPoint from last week. Generally, when I teach this class in person, I'll cover the doctrine of the Trinity, and then I'll cover the topic of Christology, that is, the doctrine of who Christ is. 
we'll cover the idea of his two natures. Before we get started on all of that, though, I want to cover one particular objection that you often see when the doctrine of the Trinity is defended, and that is the overarching accusation that the doctrine of the Trinity is based on human philosophy that developed over church history. It's a man-made doctrine rather than a divinely revealed doctrine. So what relationship does philosophy have to the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, we have to ask, what is philosophy? Well, in relationship to this topic, I would say that philosophy ultimately is the tool that we use to create categories that take into account all of the teachings of scripture. In some sense, everyone uses philosophy and that everyone has to think these things through to some extent. The problem comes in when we use that philosophy to subvert scripture or to explain away scripture. When defending the doctrine of God, I believe that we need to tackle what scripture actually says first. Now, as I mentioned last week, one of the objections that you often see to the doctrine of the Trinity is that that particular word does not appear in scripture. Someone pointed this out right away. But again, I'll repeat what I said last week. The argument is not that this word or this doctrine is explained in one particular airtight verse in one particular place in scripture. It's a cumulative argument that's being made that takes into account all the different teachings that scripture has, and then it summarizes them. And this word is basically just the word we use to label that summary. And so the Trinitarian, like me, is not arguing that this word is in scripture. We're not arguing that there is one single verse that sums it all up perfectly. The argument is that when you take all of scripture into account honestly and you let it speak in its fullness and you don't pit one verse against the other, you are forced into a position where you have to affirm this doctrine. And the organization of all that information is where the philosophy comes in. However, I would argue that those who object to the doctrine of the Trinity are actually using philosophy as well. However, I would argue that what they're doing is that they're taking certain doctrines that the Trinitarian would agree with, and they're defending those doctrines with passages that Trinitarians would acknowledge, but then they're taking other passages that seem on the surface to be contrary to the first passages they pointed out, and they're saying those can't mean what they seem to be saying. I'm going to use philosophy to side with one side of these truths about God, and I'm going to reinterpret these other truths about God. God because they can't go together in my mind. And therefore, philosophy is used to cancel out what scripture says. Philosophy is not used to harmonize what scripture says. And I think this becomes plain if you read through many of the comment threads that resulted from last week's video. A Trinitarian argument would be presented, and then another truth would be presented by the other side, and then a philosophical conundrum that results from that would be presented by the anti-Trinitarian. And then that resulting seemingly impossible question would be pushed and pushed such that no other scriptures needed to be examined. Basically, in summary, the person objecting would be saying something like, look, if you can't answer this question for me, then your interpretation of all those other scriptures cannot be justified. And I don't even have to look at those passages again until you answer this question, to my satisfaction. But whether or not the biblical Trinitarian answer is satisfying is left completely up to their subjective judgment. And so the circle goes round and round and round. So let's go ahead and get started here. I'm not going to walk through the comment threads or anything like that, but I'm going to go ahead and get started on what I plan to share today. I'm going to talk a little bit about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, then we'll talk more about the personhood of Christ, and then we'll talk about more specific objections at the end. So to start, I'm going to talk about a passage again in the book of John from John chapter 14, verse 26. And this is when Jesus was talking to the disciples and saying that he was going to be going back to the Father. In this passage, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
So this particular passage actually touches on a few different errors. One of the things it does is that it refutes the idea of modalism because basically we see here that Jesus is contrasting himself as a person from the helper, the Holy Spirit, and he's contrasting the Holy Spirit to the Father. And he basically talks about each of these persons having a different role where he goes back to the Father, then the Father sends the Holy Spirit in his name. Therefore, they cannot all be the same person. But subordinationists might still have some objections to this and that they could still say that Jesus is subordinate to the Father and that the Holy Spirit may not mean what the Trinitarians want it to mean. But another error it does also refute is the Jehovah's Witness doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They tend to believe that the Holy Spirit is something more like an energy more than a person. But this passage talks about the Holy Spirit using personal pronouns of him. And Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit teaching, something only a divine person could do. As to whether or not the Holy Spirit is God, a member of the Trinity, for those arguments you'd have to revisit the previous video. Before we get moving on the rest of the PowerPoint that I mentioned, I want to present one more passage to you that sort of fits into the category of Old Testament descriptions of Yahweh being applied to Christ. So in John chapter 12, John writes of Christ and says, in verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now in the context of John chapter 12, the him is clearly Jesus. But if you look back at the book of Isaiah and see who Isaiah spoke of the glory of, the only one present is Yahweh. In Isaiah chapter 6, it talks about Isaiah saying, I have seen the Lord, and he sees the glory of the Lord. So in short, if you ask Isaiah, who'd you see the glory of? He would have said Yahweh. But if you ask John, who did Isaiah see the glory of? John would have said Christ. What other explanation for this would there be other than the doctrine of the Trinity? Three divine persons in one being. The name of Yahweh is being applied to all of them. So again, before we revisit some objections to the previous video, I want to continue on with the PowerPoint that I use in my theology class covering the doctrine of the Trinity. And we're going to expand more on the person of Christ and talk more about what the traditional doctrine of Christ's personhood is. Specifically, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the incarnation. We're going to talk about the relationship between Christ's divine nature and his human nature and how this is biblically talked about and how it has been summarized in church history. So like we did last week when we talked about the foundational doctrines of the Trinity, let's talk about the foundational doctrines of who Christ is. So number one, Christ has eternally existed as a divine person. Let's talk about a passage that talks about that. In John 1, 1 through 3, as we talked about last week, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, it says later in verse 14. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, some have argued that this idea of the word was only an idea in the mind of God and was sort of a plan for a person that he would eventually create. There are actually a couple forms of subordinationism that you'll find. So, for instance, there are the Jehovah's Witnesses who will say that Christ did have pre-existence, but he was a lesser spiritual being. He was the first creation of God. But then there are also subordinationists who believe that Jesus didn't even have pre-existence. He was only a human being blessed by God and led perfectly by God. He was the Messiah, but only a human. Later on in the book of John, you will actually see that at the very least, this second option, this idea that Jesus was only a human being cannot be true according to scripture. In chapter 17 of John, in verse 5, 
Jesus prays to the Father and says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existence. So notice in this passage, we see the idea that Jesus has this self-awareness before the creation of the world. He says, I had this thing with you before the foundation of the world, this glory. Some try to separate these ideas out and speak as if this glory was something that the Father had, but he was planning on giving it to the Son. But Jesus is speaking in a way that he was with the Father before the foundation of the world having this glory. He was there, not just the glory. So there's a passage about Christ's pre-existence, but what about his actual divinity? What about his actual Godhood? Was he a member of the Trinity? Was he actually God? Let's look at another passage in John about this. After Jesus' resurrection, many of us remember the character of Doubting Thomas, one of the disciples. Let's look at the passage where Thomas actually speaks to Jesus. Let's look what Jesus says to him. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. That's John 20, 27-28. So from everything I've read and everything that I've heard about this verse, there is no question in the original Greek that both the terms my Lord and my God are addressed directly to Jesus. Some have tried to split this up and try to say that Thomas was simply in shock and said, my Lord, and then looked up to heaven and said, my God. But grammatically, both of these titles are being applied to Jesus. Now, some like to push back on these ways that Jesus was addressed as God, and they like to jump over to a passage earlier in John. So in John 10, starting in verse 30, Jesus says, I am the Father, are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So you can see that the Jews are perfectly aware of what Jesus is claiming here. What throws people off a bit here is when Jesus answers and says in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he calls them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? And so there is a bit of a debate here as to whether these quote-unquote beings that God calls gods are earthly rulers or whether they are part of a heavenly host. And so you will often see Jehovah's Witnesses perhaps latch onto this and say, look, Jesus was merely claiming that he was a member of the heavenly host or he was a heavenly being, maybe even the highest heavenly being, but he was inferior to God. But whichever side you take on who these beings are, whether human or part of the heavenly host, if you look in context in the Old Testament, when God says this, he tells these beings that they will die like men. He's actually in the midst of a rebuke. Jesus then confirms that he is superior to these beings and says that God consecrated him and sent him into the world, again, at the very least proving his preexistence. But as we look at the rest of the book of John, and as we're about to talk about the other Gospels, Jesus receives worship in a way that is only given to Yahweh and is never given to another heavenly being. And so this passage in John 10 in no way takes away from the fact that Jesus is addressed as God, Yahweh God. We'll probably touch a little bit more on the topic of Christ's Godhood a little later when we talk about common objections, but let's move to the topic of Christ's humanity. There is another set of heresies in church history that deny Christ's humanity and simply say that he was some kind of spirit without a true body, but that's not true either. So let's read a very strong passage on the topic of Christ's true humanity. In the book of Hebrews, we find this passage, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Christ, likewise partook of the same things, 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's Hebrews 2, 18 Let's look at another passage from the book of Colossians. Many believe that Paul was responding to a heresy that was cropping up in the church called Gnosticism, what we would now call proto-Gnosticism. And in various ways, this heresy questioned the doctrine of who Christ is. So in chapter 2, we read, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, one objection I've received in response to this passage in Colossians 2.9 is that you see similar language in the book of Ephesians where Paul writes of Christians being filled with all the fullness of God. And so the argument goes, if Christians can be filled with all the fullness of God, then how is it special that the fullness of deity dwelt in Christ bodily? But the answer to this becomes pretty clear when you simply compare the context of Colossians and Ephesians. In Colossians, the emphasis is on fighting worldly philosophy and putting true faith in Christ by recognizing his authority and being empowered by God's spirit as a result of that. In other words, the authority of Christ is the emphasis. All the fullness of deity indwelling Christ bodily was not mentioned by Paul in comparison to us, but established Christ's authority over us. But then let's look over at Ephesians. Let's start in chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So notice here, Paul is not pointing to our authority in comparison to Christ's authority, both of us being filled with the fullness of God. In fact, look at verse 17. In verse 17, he talks about Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. And then, just after that, he says that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, apparently, having Christ dwell in our hearts through faith and being filled with all the fullness of God are the same idea in the mind of Paul. Again, apparently, putting Christ on the same level as God. Again, context always matters. So some might hear about these two natures of Christ and become confused and say, did the nature of God somehow change when the second person of the Trinity became a human being? If there was a true change to the nature and the being of God, then that would mean that God is mutable and we all historically believe that God is immutable, unchanging. But if we look closely at the language that scripture uses when talking about the incarnation, we see that it's not necessary that we believe this happened. The divine nature of Christ did not change. In the incarnation, Christ took on a complete second nature, while his original divine nature did not change. The two came together. The two natures are distinct, but they are inseparable. Historically, the word for this is the hypostatic union. So historically, there are a few errors that have come up as people have tried to understand this. The first one we could mention is called Apollinarianism. This teaching is basically that, in some sense, Christ's mind was divine, but his body was physical and human. 
Back in the 4th century, we can actually see a quote from Gregory of Nazianza saying why this doctrine was so dangerous. He says, quote, If anyone has put their trust in him as a human being, lacking a human mind, they are themselves mindless and not worthy of salvation. You can see how much more aggressive people were back in those days. He continues, For what has not been assumed has not been healed. It is what is united to his divinity that is saved. Let them not grudge us our total salvation, or endue the Savior with only the bones and nerves and mere appearance of humanity. And so you can see his point. Jesus came to save us, and he saved us by becoming completely human. His human nature was complete. He had a human mind. He had a human body. But he also had his complete divine nature. Let's just run through a few other errors. There is the idea of Ebionism, for instance. Again, this denies the deity of Christ. Then there is Arianism, which we've talked about before, which makes Christ subordinate. This heresy denies the full deity of Christ, even though it still sees him as pre-existent and as a majestic supernatural being. Then there is Docetism, and this is a denial, again, of the humanity of Christ. It makes him purely spiritual. Then there is Nestorianism, and this in some way denies the unity of the two natures. It makes them much more separate. And then there is Eutychianism, and this is the idea that the natures somehow blended together. It denies the distinction of these two natures. So again, let's summarize this idea of who Christ is. Number one, Christ has eternally existed as a divine person. Secondly, Christ took on a human nature at a point in time. And thirdly, Christ has these two natures, human and divine. These are two complete natures, and while they are distinct, they are inseparable. So with that summary out of the way, let's run through a few more of the objections that we can run into in the course of this debate as we explain this doctrine. Some of the comments that I saw and the objections that I saw as I read the comments throughout the week kind of demonstrated that the people commenting really only found the video in order to argue they didn't actually engage with the content. Some of them did respond a little bit more to what I was saying, and we were able to interact a little more effectively. But regardless of that, there were a few objections that I would say were worth addressing. One interesting question that I saw asked was, look, if Jesus came to earth and he served the father in some sense or worshiped the father in some sense, then isn't he serving or worshiping a one person God, whereas we are serving a three person God? Doesn't that make it so that Jesus is worshiping a different God? So to answer this question, we need to ask the question, what exactly is worship? As we look throughout scripture, I believe that worship is to seek the glory of someone. We are to seek the glory of the most valuable being. So we have to ask, did Christ do that and did he do it with the same God that we have? So in his earthly ministry, yes, we see Jesus demonstrate how to pray to God, how to serve the Father, how to obey the Father. But ultimately, when we look at the whole of the doctrine of the Trinity and we look at the whole of what Christ accomplished in relationship to the Trinity, we see that Christ did in fact want to elevate the glory of the entirety of the Trinity. While Christ did seek the glory of his Father, he also recognized, as we mentioned in John 17, that he wanted to return to the presence of his Father with the glory that he had before the ages began. In other words, the entirety of the Trinity seeks the glory of the entirety of the Trinity. And so, yes, in the ultimate sense, Christ had the same God that we do. He sought the glory of the same God that we do. But we have to recognize that, obviously, a person of the Trinity is going to have a different place and a different experience of the glorification of the Trinity than a mere creature would. And so worship for Christ will look different from ours. But that is not the same as saying that Christ has a different God than us. So another common objection you will see is that Christ truly does seem to have a subordinate relationship to the Father. And in many passages, you will see language that looks very much like that. 
So for instance, in response to passages like 1 Corinthians 15 that talk about God being the head of Christ, Trinitarians would argue that these are statements concerning Christ's mission as Messiah. They do not speak to the, what you would call, ontology of Christ. They do not speak to the divine nature of Christ in eternity past. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, when Christ's work is accomplished and he hands the kingdom over to the Father, God will be all in all. Another objection that you'll often find is that Trinitarians like to focus on the book of John, whereas this emphasis supposedly is not in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we can respond to this in a couple of different ways. We can respond to, for instance, subordinationists who make this claim who see Jesus as only a human being. But I think that we can also pretty clearly respond to those who see that Jesus is a pre-existent supernatural being who is subordinate to the Father. So first of all, it's very clear, for instance, in the book of Matthew, that Christ is pre-existent. If you look, for instance, in Matthew 23, we see that Jesus talks about sending prophets to the people of Israel, sending his messengers. And he talks about how their rejection of these messengers continues to increase the judgment of God on them. And so how could Christ talk about sending all these messengers unless he is a pre-existent being? So I think passages like that definitely refute the idea that Christ is only a man, but do they refute the idea that Christ is pre-existent but subordinate to God? So for instance, we know from passages like, say, Isaiah in chapter 42, in verse 8, it's very clear that God does not share his glory with another. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now, some may argue with this passage in Isaiah and not want to take it literally because we do see later in scripture the idea of God glorifying his people. But obviously what God means in Isaiah is that no one should worship anyone like they worship God. And yet we see this very kind of worship being applied to Christ where it is never applied to any human being. And so no, the glorification that any follower of Christ experiences is not the same as the glory that the Father gives to Christ, resulting in the worship that Christ receives from every creature. When we look in the synoptics, we absolutely see Jesus Christ receiving glory and receiving worship, worship due only to God. We see this in places like Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. We see it in Matthew 14, 33. We see it in Matthew 28, 8 and 9. Some might respond to this and compare it to people simply falling before kings or something like that. However, in these same apostolic writings, we see human beings falling down before angels and being rebuked for it. We see this in Acts 10.25 and we see it in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. So if human beings are not allowed to fall down and worship an angel, then how much more are they not allowed to worship a human being? Now, again, some object and talk about the fact that this overarching doctrine of the Trinity that is made up by all of these passages, they'll be upset that this is not articulated in a formulaic perfect way in one single verse. They'll object to this case being made in a cumulative sense. However, objectors like this, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who believe that Jesus is a supernatural being, they won't give any single passage that talks about this sort of in-between nature of Christ, where he's not fully divine, but he's also not only a human being, but somehow we can worship him. But there is no single verse that defines this kind of being in this way. If they're going to make any case at all, it's going to be cumulative. However, as I've shown, this idea of the Trinity is far more clear than any cumulative case a Jehovah's Witness would make. Jesus Christ is either a human being, 
or he is preexistent and preexistent because he is God. So going back to subordinationists who deny any divinity in Christ whatsoever and believe he was only a human being, another argument that these people will make, as we mentioned before, is that Jesus was only an idea in the mind of God, someone he planned to make. And therefore, any talk of his preexistence is merely the preexistence of that idea, not the preexistence of the divine person. So basically, they'll summarize this argument and say, look, God talks about the prophet Jeremiah and says, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. But as we've talked about already, Christ's claims to pre-existence were far stronger than this. Contained in these statements are ideas of Christ's self-awareness when he was pre-existent and the choices that he made when he was pre-existent. We see this very clearly in the passage in Philippians that talks about him not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then as a result of this, taking on the form of a servant by means of his birth. In other words, Christ was involved in the decision to be born as a human being. It wasn't simply a creation of a human being by God. And again, we can go back to John 17, where it talks about the glory that Christ had with the Father before the world was made. So after having said all of that, let's summarize things. Sorry if this has been a little bit scattered, but I wanted to accomplish several different things here, and hopefully they didn't intertwine too much. But I want to end things by asking a question to those who would reject this idea of the deity of Christ, his full humanity and full divine nature. When you look at worship given to the Lamb in the book of Revelation, is that something that you would ever be comfortable with when talking about anyone other than God? So for instance, in Revelation 5 verse 13, it says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Ask yourself in your heart of hearts, can you actually attribute that kind of language to anyone other than Yahweh? This is language that is being applied explicitly to the Father and to the Lamb. I believe that the Trinity is the only reasonable explanation as to how this all goes together. These are two divine persons in one divine being, along with the Holy Spirit. So there's my summary. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope it was helpful. Again, if you object to this doctrine and you want to continue to discuss it in the comment section, feel free. But if you're really hostile to this idea and you don't want to see it spread, I just want to warn you, if you continue at length in the comments section back and forth, then it's going to continue to perpetuate my message. So I appreciate it ahead of time. So there it is. There's my summary. I hope it was helpful. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure that you leave a like if you enjoyed it. And if you're a Christian who agrees with the content and want to help me out, make sure that you comment as well well. Tell me what you learned and tell me what was helpful to you. And if you're new to the channel, make sure that you subscribe. I really appreciate it. If you hit the notification bell, then you'll know when new uploads happen. Or again, if you're listening through audio, then make sure that you follow on whatever platform you discovered the podcast on. Thanks again. This is Grace Nerd. My name is Eric, and we'll see you around in the next one. Thanks for watching. <laughs>